0: What would make life easier? Uh, well, you know, I guess a million dollars will make life easier. <laughs>
1: <Right>? <laughs> How's it going? Uh, this is going to be fun. Um, I'm excited I'm getting to do this. I had some great conversations with uh, friends and researchers uh, about uh, the way that the racial wealth gap um, is demonstrated in our society. And so I'm really glad I get to play these uh, conversations for you. Uh, And I'll share my thoughts um, at the end about uh, all of this. I think it's just a really, really important topic uh, that I want to continue talking about. So, at times, the researchers that I interviewed will reference, you know, their papers or slides. Uh, so, um, when they do that, just uh, if you want to go find them, I will link to them in our show notes um, for your reference. Uh, and um, I just want to say thank you to everyone who I spoke with. Um, They were absolutely so gracious with our time um, and candid and honest and provided such invaluable perspectives. So I spoke with Karen Chu, who is the Chief of Banking Research at the Federal Depository Insurance Corporation, or the FDIC. Um, I spoke with Sabrina Howell, who is a researcher from the NYU Stern School of Business. Uh, And then I spoke with two friends of mine, um, to get a sense for the perspectives of a person of color and a, a white person uh, as it relates to kind of the, the lived experiences of, um, of this issue. So first, I decided to hop on the phone with Karen Chu and get her thoughts on the racial wealth gap, her research, and potential solutions.
0: Hi, is this Karen? Hey, yes. This is Jason Bareford from the, um,
1: the NYU Wagner School. Hi, how are you? And Karen and I dove right in, walking through her research and illustrating how disparities exist across every single income level between Black, White, and Hispanic families and their access and Use of bank credit and, in general, most financial products.
2: Um, so, in this part of the survey, we really focused on financial products that households can use to address kind of like short-term income shortfalls um, or unexpected expenses. So we're not focused on, say, you know, do you have a mortgage, for example? Um, right. So, these are these are the sorts of things that you these basically like you know, if you need short-term credit to get you over some unexpected events. Um, and then, obviously, households uh, could also use non-bank credit of the type um, listed there, payday loans, auto title loans, et cetera, to, um, like to get funds to meet the unexpected needs. And then, um, if you look at slide 10, you find that bank credit use was lower among these types of households. Um, and when we, when we pull out these kinds of factors, what we've actually done in the background is we've actually run the full regression model where we put all of the demographic factors in. So these are, these particular factors are still statistically significant after controlling for everything else, basically. Um, and in particular, uh, for bank credit use, the differences by income by race and ethnicity are particularly stark. So the graph I want to show you is on Flight 11. And what you see is that basically the differences uh, in bank credit use by race and ethnicity persist at every income level, right? So even when you're looking at households that make at least $75,000, you see that uh, white households in that income category still a, a, a much larger and statistically significantly larger share of white households in that income category have been critic compared to black and hispanic households
1: yeah this is this is uh, one I of like the things the, that i i, I really found just so striking um, sorry go ahead
2: I don't know. I, I just, you know, oftentimes I think when you, um, when you bring up the fact that, you know, uh, you see stark differences by race and ethnicity in use of bank credit, um, often what people think is, oh, well, black and Hispanic households are just poorer. So obviously it makes sense that they, you know, less of them have credit. What we really wanted to show here was that even after you control for income, you know, those disparities really do still exist narrow a little bit at the top, um, but, it, you know, they still statistically significant.
1: This was one of the points in the interview that really made me pause, because it's such a clear illustration, controlling for income, for, controlling for a number of other variables, the disparities in access to credit still exist across every income level between Black, Hispanic, and white families. So then, I asked Karen about potential solutions to this disparity. We agreed that it exists. We agreed that it uh, should be remedied. And I then wanted to hear her thoughts about how we could begin to structure a solution to this problem. And I think the research that she highlights regarding the reasons why uh, people are hesitant to join uh, the banking system and become part of a the, the banked community um, are, are really insightful and really, uh, really important to highlight here. So, um, Karen, again. Uh,
2: um, you, you asked about particular solutions, right? So, um, I think that... There is. There's no silver bullet. There's no um, one-size-fits-all solution that's going to, to um, you know, to, to um, make a dent. And I think that uh, so something that's interesting is you. Um, if you look at slide four, right, um, and we looked at slide five earlier, shows that the the, the red guy. Um, and ethnicity. But the end bank rate has been declining for a while now. And what you might imagine, I think, happens is if you look at slide seven, that, you know, the households that are kind of like the easier ones to persuade to join the banking system are, are have increasingly already joined the banking system. So as you get a smaller and smaller share of households that are unbanked, they become the harder ones to persuade to join the banking system. Mm-hmm. Um, right, so you see this slide where we asked unbanked households in twenty nineteen um, more than half said so they, they were not at all interested in having an account. Um, so uh, you know, so that's uh, that's certainly challenging. Although there were there were still some that said they were very somewhat interested. Um, So just even there, you can see that, uh, you know, a single solution is not going to be enough.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Then if you look at slide six, you know, there are many, many, many reasons that households give for not having a bank account. Um, So we, we ask households, you know, to say yes or no to any of these, and then we. Among the ones that they said yes to, we say, well, which one is, you know, the main reason? Um, and so, and these reasons are really varied, right? Mm-hmm. Um, don't have enough money to meet minimum balance requirements and don't trust banks. The top 2 uh, they're really different.
1: Mm-hmm. One thing I think is so important to reiterate from what Karen just said is that this issue Uh, takes a number of different forms, and will likely not be solved with a one-size-fits-all solution. Uh, So whatever is working in uh, New York City or Atlanta may not work in Tifton, Georgia, or Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, And so the solution needs to be targeted and tailored to the locality and to the community. Um, And so she talks about These things called bank on accounts and these are basically accounts where the FDIC has partnered with a local lender, uh, a bank, and uh, these accounts that have very low um, initial deposit requirements and have almost no fees across the board for transactions or uh, there's no fee for overdraft, there's no fee for um, uh, inactivity, and they're these extremely uh, uh, consumer-friendly accounts, and even when you have the solution, you got to do the work to get the community engaged and involved around using that solution to fit their specific needs. So, can I talk a little bit about that coming up here.
2: But even if, um, even if uh, you know, even if there was a bank-on account, let's say uh, a bank that offers a bank-on certified account in your city. Um, that doesn't actually mean that people know about it. Which is something we also found out through our consumer focus groups. Um, we did focus groups in cities that had these kinds of accounts, and people didn't know about them.
1: Hmm.
2: You know, so it's not it's not just build it and they will come. Right. There's a lot of work that, that has to go into. You can build it, and then you actually have to you know have to have to
1: do outreach so people know about it yeah yeah you gotta do the work to um, to get people signed up and using the right services and using all the services correctly and um, yeah and making sure they're not uh, right falling into any of these um, issues that they weren't intending to right They, they, they could just accidentally be overdrafting and they could be Um, accidentally transferring money that uh, has a high transfer fee or, or um, that they didn't intend to be doing. So, um, right. Right. There are, there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of things like that. I I think that's a really good point. So we decided to wrap things up and I asked Karen if she had any questions for me. And of course I'm nobody. So she did not, but her final thoughts I thought were really uh, insightful and talked to the, the point about why this issue is so important for everyone, and um, really explained well how far this issue reaches. Even within the financial services sector, so many aspects of our lives, including homeownership, um, are touched by access to credit and some of the credit disparities that exist um, across racial groups that need a solution, and I, I wanted to include our thoughts here.
2: I, I think it's. Um, I think it's wonderful that you know you have an interest in this area. I think that uh, you know this whole area of sort of financial services and um, and you know inclusive of um, like credit, um, bank account access, etc., um, is a is a really important area. Uh, it's it's sort of um, it you know underlies. Uh, so much of our lives and, and facilitates so much of what we're able to do, including co ownership, right? Um, and um, you know, I think it's uh, I think it's important for uh, you know to to continue to work, right, to, to include to improve the, the financial inclusion in the financial services sector.
1: Yes, <laughs> I could not agree more. Um, well, Karen, thank you so much um, for taking the time today, and I hope... Uh... So, after getting the 30,000-foot perspective from Karen, uh, I really wanted to dive into the uh, the ground level um, and share some of the conversation with Junior, who's a, a young uh, Mexican homeowner in New York City. Um, he graciously... Uh, did this out of a request from one of my uh, classmates, and I, I, I felt like junior um, really provided a valuable perspective on the difficulties of uh, amassing that capital that you need to begin uh, investing in um, buying a home, um, and so you know, hearing about the disparities in access to credit from Karen are um incredibly valuable. But these lived experiences from Junior um I think paint a really uh clear picture. So I asked him directly about how he planned on um, pulling together the money for his down payment. And um this is how he talked about it well you have to start with just good credit and just savings. Yeah,
0: you know, savings on um, you. You know, you just you just gotta tie down. Sometimes you know, not going out, having fun. You just gotta you will sit home and and do what's necessary for you to come up with with your down payment.
1: Yeah, I thought this was. An absolutely invaluable perspective from Junior. So I asked him to keep going uh, and talk about the difficulties of not having uh, the money for the down payment and not having it readily available within your own network, uh, but then needing to take on extra work, work two jobs, work an extra shift, and really buckle down in order to, to build the money to create the American dream and the difficulties of that um, and I think it's in such stark contrast to uh, experiences uh, by white families in the United States so uh, I, I wanted to get Junior to keep going here uh, and I think it's it's really 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 important when he talks about the difficulties
0: I mean, uh, the way I see it is like anything else, you get used to it, you know, like if you you have a job, a nine-to-five job, and then out of nowhere, you switch jobs and you're starting now at five in the morning and leaving work at two, waking up to get to work at five in the morning, you have to wake up now at four, it's going to be difficult, but once you get used to it, you'll be okay. So... Like anything else, once you make a decision and you say, you know what, I want a house, my first step is to, to start saving money, to come up with 50, 70,000, you know, and work and, and have a plan and, and see it through.
1: So I decided to reach out to one of my white friends who works as a teacher and, uh, along with their partner, is going through the process of pulling together the money to put the down payment on for a home. And I thought it'd be important to share the way that she talked about, um, you know, similarly to Junior, her job did not, uh, her and her partner's jobs did not allow them to consider home buying as a real option. Um, But that, you know, the way that, that Karen Chu from the FDIC talked about, Um, access to capital I think was important for contrasting these two experiences when uh, my friend talks about the ways that in her network uh, they were able to to find the money for a down payment and it wasn't uh, you know the same sort of difficulty that Junior shares so um, I'll play that here and how did so you kind of, How did you think oh, yeah. about pulling together the down payment?
2: So, all of it started just because, like, I don't think we in our heads thought we were in a place to get a house, like, we really entertained that idea, mm-hmm.
0: um,
2: because, like, neither of us had a huge amount of savings, mm-hmm. but then when Jacob's mom was in town, she was talking about the idea of, like getting a duplex and like we could live in one and his sister could live in another and then it kind of evolved into this idea of like well we could help you with a down payment get your first house and work out how you pay it back kind of thing yeah so we kind of knew we could do x amount but it was going to be like pretty much all of our savings which made us uncomfortable because it's like what if something happens Mm -hmm. um and then we'd still have to pay them back too so just all those payments kind of on top of each other's a lot Mm -hmm. um and we're paying rent so so yeah right
0: (laughs) so
1: (laughs) everything is flying out the windows (laughs) i thought this was such a important part of this project uh because knowing my friend and her partner so well, I know that their experience was not easy, uh, but that it's something that Karen and I, um, you know, briefly touched on during our conversation uh, in in relation to uh, the way that different families have different levels of of capital available to them and and the way that network effects can um, perpetuate and and prop up the the racial wealth gap uh, in really really innocuous ways, and I think um, I think this was just a really a good uh, example of contrasting two very similar experiences from people that have uh, income levels and types of income that are very similar. They both work union jobs. Um, do not make uh, exorbitant amounts of money um, but the network effects of their access to capital is is really really um, stark to to contrast so um, I'm really glad I got to share these experiences so lastly I talked to Sabrina Howell who is a researcher from the NYU Stern School of Business and uh, the research that her and her colleagues pulled together um, recently regarded the the way that there was a racial disparity in uh, the lending program that was termed uh, the PPP. So this is the Paycheck Protection Program that essentially was a federal program that funneled money from the federal government through private lenders to small and medium-sized businesses. And it was designed to make sure that people were not laid off. Really important program. Um, and their research showed that black owned businesses had to resort to uh, fintech lenders more often because of the racial bias that small banks demonstrated. And so I think, you know, you'll hear in a second, the way that she talks about this um, is really important to understand kind of how far reaching uh, this issue can go, um, because it's not just about, you know, personal access to credit and, uh, you know, mortgage lending and things that are related to um, individual experiences, that this can seep into business lending and this can seep into every nook and cranny of the economy. And so um, I think it's, one, really important to highlight the work that she and her colleagues did. Because it's really important. It's a little um, complicated to follow, but um, it's, it's really, really critical. And then I think it's also interesting to hear um, one of the potential solutions that their research demonstrates as to why black-owned businesses had to resort to fintech lenders in order to get the money that had already been allocated to them from the federal government so i've linked to her research in my notes and uh, this is her and i talking about the work that her and her colleagues did and some of the solutions that may be present uh, for this specific issue
3: definitely we so we start by identifying these really striking descriptive disparities where over half um, of Black-owned businesses who got PPP loans got them from a fintech lender, about 54%. And fintech lenders made only 17% of all loans. So this is sort of grossly grossly uh, disproportionate. Um, and a gap like that does, does not exist for the other racial and ethnic groups that we considered um, Hispanic, Asian, and white-owned businesses. Uh, and um, and it also doesn't appear across gender lines. So there's this really striking disparity in particular for Black-owned businesses relative to other businesses in where they got their PPP loans. And um, and so we focus sort of on this, uh, the the determinants of, you know, that, that disparity, sort of why were Black-owned businesses so much more likely than other groups to get their loans from a fintech. Um, and we sort of, First show that we can account for about two-thirds of that difference using really granular controls for the firm's location, their industry, their loan size, their firm type. Um, but even with those controls, black loan businesses are still about 12 percentage points or 70 percent of the mean chance of a fintech loan, more likely than other groups to get their loan from a fintech lender. Um, and as you mentioned, they're much less likely to get their PPP loans from smaller banks in particular. Uh, while there's no difference for the top four banks. So with our controls, we really don't find that there's any, that, that you know, top four banks are treating sort of Black-owned applicants or Black-owned businesses different than other businesses. Um, really, the sort of substitution seems to be coming away from the smaller banks. And so we what we then do um, is... We sort of first look for affirmative evidence of preference-based discrimination, which is sort of our main interest in this paper. Uh, is is trying to use a context where there's no credit risk to see if um, you know if 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 some of the disparity may reflect uh, preference-based discrimination on the part of these 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 lenders. Um, and so first we show that the disparities are stronger and. Parts of the country with higher anti-black racial animus, using six different measures of, of, of animus, um, and then in what's kind of the coolest part of the paper, um, with the strongest causal interpretation, we you know think about why uh, you know if there were to be racial discrimination, would it be sort of absent at the top four banks and fintechs, but present at small banks? And one answer is the degree of automation versus human decision making. So we exploit data on small banks that automated their processes during the PPP and show that after automation their share of loans to Black-owned businesses increased and that furthermore that effect is larger in areas with higher anti-Black racial animus. Um, And we also show that the disparity doesn't fully reflect Black-owned firms being more likely to apply to fintechs, even when we we actually have application data and we can see that when those applications are sent only to a conventional lender, the borrowers still actually more likely to ultimately get a fintech loan and also more likely to get really no loan at all in in new analysis we're doing.
1: So I just think, you know, Sabrina and her colleagues work was absolutely invaluable in demonstrating a disparity that existed in 2020. You know, this isn't the 1860s and this isn't even the 1960s or the early 2000s. This is 2020. Uh, and this is a racial disparity that existed from a federal program funneled through private lenders uh, that showed that, that black-owned businesses had to resort to other options for something that was deemed a necessity for everyone in the economy uh, at a time when there's a global pandemic going on. So I I think it's just, if you have the time, please read her work, and I'm so thankful that she was able to speak to me um, for a little bit in order to record this, this interview uh, because it's such an in, invaluable uh, work. Um, so uh, lastly, we just kind of touched on, you know, some of the reasons why and how automation uh, can be such a benefit um, when used correctly. So um, I'll play that here.
3: Uh, but I think what we're sort of, saying is that there is a real benefit uh to black owned businesses from just pure automation because these human biases are sort of eliminated from from the loan processing um now and then you know of course the the sort of underwriting decision is a bit of a is a different is a little bit of a different animal um but i think it's important for the debate about how how much to allow fintechs in our um you know in our financial sort of services ecosystem that's sort of happening among policymakers to recognize that there can actually be pretty significant equity benefits from automation um, by by reducing that human sort of human element
1: I hope this was insightful and instructive for everyone who listened I think this is such important work and information and I'm so appreciative of all the time that people gave me in order to create this project. I think this demonstrates uh, two realities of the issue of the racial wealth gap in America. The first is that this issue is is not being thrust to the wayside and it is in fact given a a serious amount of attention from nearly every corner of the financial and research institutions of our country. And this provides an opportunity for us to make a legitimate push for wealth equity in the country. The second reality is that while that's true, the sad fact is that the size of the racial wealth gap has not materially changed since the early 1900s. The experiences in the second reality can often take the form of quieter and sinister discrimination, like this final story that Junior shared with me.
0: And then um, there was, well, we had one case where there was one lady, she was selling her home, we had made an offer, we were below her offer, about $20,000. And she did sell to us, but to find out later on, she sold, that, she sold the house for $30,000 less than what she was asking for. The reason why, I'm not sure.
1: Often to my own detriment, I am an eternal optimist. I choose to see the opportunity in that first reality. Uh, But I can't not acknowledge the second as a fact of our past and present. I think that who we are does not confine who we can be. But I never forget the stories from people like Junior, uh, because it's those stories that create our shared history.